Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the new Sofa Music Podcast, Sofa Stories. Sofa is a Norwegian record label for experimental music founded by musicians Ingar Zak and Ivar Gridlund in 2000. And now Sofa is run by Ingar, Martin Taxt, and Kim Mir out of their office in Oslo. My name is Jennifer, I'm a violinist and a writer, and let me be the first to say that if you thought this was a place to sort out some unresolved issues with your upholstery, that you can turn back at any time, because this is a show in which I'm going to be speaking with Sofa's recording artists about the tales behind their latest albums. What really makes my heart sing about this label is that every album is a fairly potent source of questions. Like, where did that sound come from? How are you making it? Why are you making it? That sort of thing. We're hoping that the show can help answer some of those questions and perhaps inspire you to ask a few more. Before we get into the meat of the episode, I wanted to talk a bit about the birth of the label. As Ingar says, when the label got started, there was little to no interest regarding our music and activity. So we quickly realized that we had to start a label ourselves to release our music. We recorded a bunch of material and rehearsed in my living room on the west side of Oslo, and the technician recorded us sitting on my sofa. So it's actually very simple. It started out as sofa music because it was recorded on my sofa. I love this because the sofa is the furniture with the fewest expectations. You don't have to sit up straight. In fact, you often can't, and you don't have to arrange your legs like a lady. In many cases, the sofa is happy just to serve as a repository for potato chip crumbs. And I think all of this is a fairly apt metaphor for how we can try to approach this kind of music, to just sit down with the sound and feel our way through it. Which doesn't even mean necessarily enjoying it, although I really hope you do, but just feeling for points of alignment and trust. First up on this buffet for the senses is Maddie Barbier. The music throughout this episode is excerpted from their album Threads, which came out this October alongside two other albums that you'll be hearing about soon by Jan Martin Smirdal and Oystein Weller Odin. Maddie is a musician based in LA. They're active as a performer on low brass instruments, often on trombone, in the case of this album, on trombone and euphonium. And they're also a composer and teacher at Cal Arts and Los Angeles City College. They've worked with incisive musicians from all over, including Catherine Lamb, Michelle Liu, Weston Alenke, and George Lewis. I myself have been especially enamored of their work with Weston Olenke on Rage Thorn Bones, which, for those of you burdened with Instagram accounts, actually has a pretty metal selection of memes on tap. Maddie describes their album Threads as a duo with the unique acoustics of the Tank Center for Sonic Arts in Rangeley, Colorado, which is where the album was recorded. The Tank, as the town of Rangeley writes, is a 60 feet tall, 30 feet across, rusted steel water tank that was discovered in Colorado by the sound artist and sonic thinker Bruce Odland in 1976. The Tank is a sonic wonder of the world, they write, with a shifting, swirling reverberation that's longer and richer than the Taj Mahal or the Great Pyramid. Sitting unnoticed in the dirt hills, surrounded by oil pumps and dirt bike trails, the profound acoustic beauty within is balanced by the austerity of its remote location and its simple industrial architecture. Well then, I am so delighted that Maddie could take the time to come on and talk about their work in this otherworldly space. 
first we're going to listen to a bit from the album's first track, Untitled One, and then we'll get into the interview. There will also be clips from the album dispersed throughout the interview. Hope you enjoy! Where I wanted to begin is with the start of your own journey to the recording venue, since it seems in the liner notes that this left an impression on you. Specifically, your liner notes about the journey to the recording venue mentioned cowboys, and I think that we deserve an explanation about all of that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I mean, I guess the backstory on that is my partner's mom, Diana, is a farmer on the western slope of Colorado. She had been an anthropologist and worked at UCLA for a long time and then retired and became a farmer. So... We spent a lot of time out there anyway, and during COVID, we're like, okay, let's go to this extremely isolated place and hang out. And then we were actually like a week or so away from heading home, and I had been trying to arrange to go to a different water tank. And I remember that the the tank was in Colorado, but I had always thought it was on the other side of the Rockies, and it was, turns out that it was um, quite close. So it was sort of just like a chaotic thing anyway where it's like i wasn't expecting to do a recording and then it's like oh this place is really close can we go in the next week and the recording studios start pretty early in the day because it just gets full sun so it gets really hot in there so you can either record from like nine to noon or like 8 p.m to midnight and so i was leaving montrose at like i want to say i was leaving at five in the morning like the the sun (laughs) the sun was not up and just going from this rural place to like even further and you kind of you go up to the biggest city that's there and then do a hard turn off into the mountains yeah you're like driving through adobes for like an hour and then suddenly you go up these series of mountain passes that um i mean even if you're going like six miles an hour it feels like you're driving too fast and there's giant 18 wheelers doing it as well like it's so it's like kind of chaotic and then you suddenly come down and you're in this narrow valley that's just cow pasture like it's just like it's basically just open range and there's like deer everywhere so it's a little bit of a stressful drive in the sense of like oh please don't hit a deer in this car that i rented to get up here but yes there's like all this cow pasture and barbed wire fence and then suddenly there was a hole in the barbed wire fence and there's just cows everywhere all over the road like i don't know at least like a hundred and I mean literally like surrounding the car cows everywhere I was just kind of like what what do you do in this situation then suddenly like literally a group of cowboys on horses with dogs rolled up and just herded them all away I love an uh, an efficient bureaucracy that way housing cowboys yeah I mean there it was totally nuts like and there was no warning just suddenly like there's somebody on a horse with like literally a lasso and a dog and then the cows were herded off back into the field and we started driving again it was totally strange 
how does an experience like that feeling like you're you're on your way to this peculiar place that admittedly is not top of anyone's destination list how does it feel to have that sort of disorienting or strange experience as you're heading into the recording session yeah i mean i was feeling at that time i was kind of running a little bit behind in the drive so i was feeling like oh you know i'm gonna be late and I think from just like the freelancing side where I do not a ton, but a little bit of session work, there's this really ingrained, like, don't ever be late part of my brain. So, yeah, it's kind of like before the cow thing happened, I was just like sort of in panic mode a little bit. And then the cows happened at first. It was just like, yeah, it was just like panicking. So it's like we're the cars in park, like what? what's going to happen yeah and, and i think sudden like the appearance of literal cowboys kind of like broke the stress <laughs> just like the, the, this is like a real like dog ate my homework kind of moment where the dog actually does it because you're just like what so that like that really that really kind of put me in a strange mental situation and then you um that whole area is on the edge of what's called the dinosaur diamond which is where a ton of archaeological activity happens like most people don't know i learned from having a dinosaur kid that we're in the um apparently we're in the golden age of paleontology and so there's like a ton of archaeological activity in the area and because of that there's a town in that area named dinosaur and it's like a little random you know desert town like there's nothing there it's just a town named dinosaur and all the streets are named after dinosaurs so like right after you get past this thing with all the cowboys you come to your first crossroads in like 100 miles, and it's a sign that just says Dinosaur 17 pointing to the left. <laughs> so you're just like, yeah, I think all of it was just this like weird, it was like one more surreal activity after the next. So you just, by the time I got to the tank, I was just like, I have, I have no idea what's happening. And that was, it was really kind of lovely. You know, it was like a, just one, activity after another of just kind of learning to let go of what the of what the plans were for the day which was really helpful in the session too because it kind of necessitated the same thing can you speak a bit more about that just sitting down into the session and feeling that way yeah 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 uh, totally so uh, I had made all of these scores that I thought would work really well in the space I think in my brain I was thinking of it as like a um almost like a tape delay where like the sound sustains for 30 seconds or whatever, instead of like, no, it's just like slowly fading out. So in my brain, it's like, oh, if I play a note, I can just build up these clouds. And so I had sort of written all these like rough scores for that in mind. And, and went and as soon as I started playing and trying one of those, it's just like, oh, literally none of this is going to work like this. None of this plan, um, that I made is is going to function in the space. And so it's just like kind of a moment of like, you know, I did a, a, a couple of takes of like, of, of trying one or two of these scores and think, and feeling a little bit frustrated and a little bit like a, a little bit of panic of like, what, this is your plan. Um, <laughs> it doesn't work. What are you going to do? And so it kind of just was a moment like, okay, well, just, I'm just going to stop and like, 
let's just do another take and I'm just going to play notes and just, I'm going to just listen to the notes in the room and like, what do they feel like in the space? And, and can I just play sounds and just hear what it does? And then like play another sound based on what that one did. And just like kind of letting go of these plans of what I thought the space was going to be like. And instead just like kind of play in a more exploratory way of just like what, what do my sounds do in the room and what does the way that the sound transforms in the space make me change the way that I'm playing? Because, um, you know, I, I brought like the, the trombone and the euphonium, which put their sound into the space in different ways. So they were both really changed in the space in really different ways. And then it's, there's also a, uh, I guess, a factory nearby. So there's a decent amount of, of like big rigs driving by every once in a while. And their sound would come, there's like a hole up on the ceiling and their sound would come in through that and sort of bounce its way down in this really incredible way. And so the, it just was kind of, the process just became really just like letting go of the plans and just listening to like, okay, well, what, what pitches and sounds and, and kind of sonic shapes are existing in the, in the tank itself? And how can I play in a way that's just sort of in duet with them rather than like, okay, let me, let me do my thing in this big boomy room. I was going to ask for those of us who haven't had the privilege of tooting in a gigantic uh, repurposed water tank, <laughs> what does it feel like to sit there and feel all of that, that resonance? Is there another experience like it that you can compare it to? Or would you say that it's kind of singular? Uh, I mean, I'd say there's things that are similar. Like it's just on sort of a spectra where like you know, Martin probably knows all about this as a tubist like as a brass player you're always looking for resonant spaces because it feels better <laughs> to play in and so you know you go and play in like a parking garage where you send your sound out and it comes back to you but it's different because it kind of they have all this other material that bounces up in this kind of beautiful way and floats back down but like on playing the euphonium it was really different than anywhere i've really played because it has this incredibly high ceiling and 
normally most resonant spaces you can find, like like a parking garage or a stairwell. Even if they go up, they have all of these things that uh, interfere with the sound. Whereas this, you could just really there's just there's no um, there's nothing that interferes with it, so it can just go and bounce back and bounce back. And um, and so there wasn't anything like that that I've experienced really anywhere else. From what you're describing, and I suppose also in my experience as a violinist going into stairwells and practicing before auditions, consequently being yelled at, although I don't know if that's been your experience, uh, but uh, it seems kind of that, uh, <laughs> uh, it seems kind of like it, it, it creates in you this affinity for spaces that other people might not consider to be so important or liminal spaces, um, maybe, spacing, maybe spaces that you're trying as hard as possible to get out of, like a parking garage. Would you say that that's the case for you? And if so, how does that maybe change your interaction with those spaces when you don't have that instrument? Yeah, I really, I, I really do have a love for those kind of spaces um, for uh, I've, had this non-music job less so these days but for a long time uh doing exhibit work at a museum and we had kind of jokingly called ourselves the um the janitorial arts association as in like the followers of janice who's the god of like hallways and incidental spaces so <laughs> i've kind of always really loved this notion of these spaces that you just pass through and i've always like whenever i get to do anything down at disney hall i always go to rehearsal early and go to the bottom level of the parking garage and practice down there for a little while. Cause I, I love those kind of spaces. I think I really developed a lot of love for them in well doing my master's degree. Cause the school didn't have enough practice rooms, but it's Los Angeles. So you can just practice outside. And you, so you just find all these nooks and crannies outside of the building that sounded good. So I've always really, you know, I think I've always had a real affinity for those kind of places, especially because you can get a lot of isolation in them in a way that like mentally in a way that you can't get in practice rooms because there's always somebody next door who's practicing. Um, of course, as soon as you articulate that, you're like, you know, oh, that violinist is practicing next to me. That's probably much worse to be next to a trombonist. But uh, <laughs> as you probably are well aware. Um, but yeah. No comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. But it's really changed. I think especially like my appreciation every time I'm in a, like a parking garage, especially if I'm with, with my kid, I, this is in my mind because we were in one yesterday and I've, we'll go in there and like sing or slam the door and make loud sound and just listen to the way that it bounces back. And I think that the experience in the tank especially made me really much more grateful for those spaces when I find myself in them, even without an instrument where it's just like getting to enjoy hearing like what comes back and how does it get changed i noticed in going through your discography that place figures into a lot of your work and i also noticed in the description of the michelle lu piece that you've recorded that perhaps someone on your team wrote that the sounds of this piece are to be felt as much to be heard and i was curious to know what that means to you especially in the process of recording something like threads yeah, I mean, places like uh, is always a big uh, thing for me, I think, especially as I've gotten older, because I growing up, I, I moved a lot, like every couple of years, we'd, we'd move somewhere totally different. And in a sense, imbued in my brain, a sense of like, where, where I am, and the space is really transient. Um, which is the thing I've really struggled with as I've gotten older of like, 
well, something's gonna essentially change that's out of my control. So I think a lot of music is about place and about like really um, trying to exist in the place that I exist in. So that's, uh, I think that's why I've been <laughs> driven to make so much music about places and the specific spaces is that, that kind of desire to like, to like, to ground myself or to remind myself that, you know, you, you're sort of in control of moving <laughs> to different places. And then I think, you know, in terms of the like physical, um, the physical nature of sound, I mean, I think so much of that is informed by just being a brass player of like when you when you're playing like you can really feel it like vibrating in your hands you can really feel the physicality of your sound controlling things and I think that you know coming from my background when I was in high school I sort of knew I wanted to play trombone but didn't fully know what that meant and then ended up at an orchestral school and like really enjoying playing an orchestra, but not so much in the, like, the process of being an orchestral musician and kind of realizing over time is, like, just that, like, that density and that physicality of sound and that's the the way it kind of surrounds you is really important to, to kind of what I'm always looking for musically and, you know, and that's driven a lot of, like, collaborations with Michelle as well. But, uh, you know, I think that, the in the, the the water tank especially the the tracks with euphonium where you could just sit in the middle of the thing and the sound goes up and you could make this like really incredible sounding wave that you could feel the sound coming back down on you i think that that that, that the literal feeling of the sound and like having your shoes off in the water tank and feeling it vibrating the floor um I think really in, informed a lot of like the pacing of the music because I could really feel it in a physical sense. And I think for me that that's, that's really important. Uh, I wanted to shift uh, a bit to the album itself. You've got a few cryptic names for the, uh, the tracks that you've picked. And also um, uh, I suppose as I was listening, I was trying to come up with my own uh, version of the narrative arc for how they were arranged. And I just thought perhaps you might like to clarify a bit of that or just kind of explain how you decided uh, for the record. For the record, uh, no, no more cryptic than like a Fall Out Boy song. I just, I just really wanted to. Uh... <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so uh, it, well, it's really funny because you know, um, uh, I guess for all of my music, I either like some like really poetic title comes to me right away, or I really struggle with it. Um, so like for the the next version of it that I'm working on, everything just kind of naturally had this very poetic name. <laughs> but I think for these, I really struggled with finding names for them because they were just, it all of it just felt so kind of bodily that I was having trouble, I guess, articulating a name for it. So I think everything ended up a, a little cryptic. And I think, especially sometimes I, um, I kind of struggle with um, some speech impediment stuff. So sometimes words are uh, the simplest words are the ones I'm comfortable with in that regard. Um, but the the two untitled tracks, those sort of existed in that titling already. They were just like, it's like a set of pieces that I was just tinkering with during COVID. And I, at that time, I was just thinking of them at, like as untitled one through five. Um, although I'll, I'll be playing the like, what I think will be the set 
on this release show on Thursday, and it does it does now actually have a non cryptic title um, <laughs> called uh, No Dirt to Call. It was originally No Dirt to Call One's Own, but that felt a little too possessive, so I just changed it to No Dirt to Call. The Coda track and the Filter track in in my brain are kind of the sort of roughly the same material, just functioning a little bit differently. The track that is Kodo, it was the last thing I did on the session, and it felt like the last, it just felt like the last thing when I played it and was thinking about it. So it just, it just felt really naturally like a Coda to me, kind of in a little bit of a literal sense, that's just how it was really felt emotionally when I played it. And then it felt like it fit really well at the end of the album. And then the, the track that's entitled uh, Filter, that has a lot to do with the actual means of production. I'm using a um, a specific kind of mute. It's called a mellow wah mute. It's not particularly important, um, but it's a it's a categorization that my duo partner uh, Weston Olinke and I, uh, who who did all the mixing and mastering, uh, which I'm very grateful for. Um, or is this category of mutes that we think of as filter mutes because they they filter the sound and you can basically like add extra pitches to what you're playing via their use. And so in that track, it was really about like using this mute and hearing the way it was changing the sound, it especially creates like a lot of high content, which would really float up into the space in this beautiful way. So it was about the filtration and like listening to the, to that kind of that floating content in the space and playing along with it. So the filtration aspect was really about the sort of the functioning and the kind of the structural importance of that aspect to the sound. And then the the track entitled "Floating Wave." That's that's one of the euphonium tracks, and I think it's the only it's yeah it's the only one where I'm actually like playing the euphonium in a some somewhat approaching normal fashion with a normal mouthpiece. And I was just like sitting sitting on the floor and just experimenting with different things, and you could just feel to me as like it like was making the standing wave, but I could in a like a physiological sense I could feel it sort of going up as I played different things and and I was sort of like kind of working my way um in in an acoustic sense up the instrument and as I did that I felt like I could feel the way float upwards so that one is you know it, it got that title just sort of about the physical sensation of playing it it just felt like everything just slowly started to float while being a standing wave
you've mentioned a number of interviews, including one with my friend and colleague Anna Heflin at the publication, which Sinfonia, which uh, I wanted to shout out because I also uh, write for occasionally, where you you describe uh, some of the issues that come with this, um, maybe common approach to playing, maybe particularly within classical music, or at least I can attest to this, uh, that prioritizes physical effort and showmanship, uh, perhaps over um, you know, content sometimes, to the point that the instrument is something to be overcome rather than a partner. And I noticed in the uh, performance manual that you wrote that you had a great way of putting this, where you, uh, you're, um, you're describing techniques to those who might uh, be interested in introducing it on their own instruments, where you say, these techniques often take an extended period to develop and even longer to control and develop a healthy relationship with. I avoid the word master because this process frequently feels like dealing with a stray animal that needs help, but doesn't quite trust you enough to care for it. Uh, and I, I thought that this was um, superbly illustrative. And I'd love uh, if you could tell us a bit about uh, how these thoughts started occurring to you. It feels to me, like especially a lot of these extended sounds, they can just go wrong no matter uh, how much you've done them and how comfortable you are with them. It's just everything is so everything is so particular and it changes in a way that's really out of your control. And um, yeah, so it does feel like it's a thing that you just have to have a relationship with rather than like control over. I've got a, a rant that I go on sometimes or uh, an, a, an idea that I articulate of uh, it's not, there's a lot of people refer to this kind of stuff as hyper virtuosity. And, and, and I really don't like that like a lot of, um, you know, like contemporary music or improvisation that's very heavily based in extended techniques and mixing all of these modes of playing, you know, kind of combining a bunch of things and doing multiple physical things all at once. Um, a lot of people I've heard it referred to as being virtuosic or hyper virtuosic because you're extending upon traditional ideas of virtuosity. And um, as you were mentioning, it's like I kind of I don't really like that because I, I view it as, you know, virtuosity has this very romantic notion of it, a sort of transcendence of the instrument. And, and at least to me, that's really connected to a kind of a lot of masculinity and brass playing in a way that makes me fairly uncomfortable. And I think it's much more about these sounds can't be made in a different way or on a different instrument. I think, you know, even like the euphonium tracks, the untitled ones, I'm actually not even sure I could do it on not even just a different instrument, like a, a literally a different euphonium or like the same model of the exact same instrument. I don't think the sound would transfer because it's so based in in the existence of the instrument and my body relating to it. And, and, and so to me, it's like it's so much based in this relational aspect of this, this, you know, this kind of system that starts, you know, with with your lungs and goes through your throat and into the instrument. It's all these things working together to, to, to make the sound. So it's not any one aspect is transcending the other, but it's just like it's this complicated system that can and frequently does go wrong. And you just sort of have to be willing to, like, sit with it and... Um, and let the sound be what it is. And sometimes you need the sound to be different than what is currently happening. And if you just try to force it to go there, it's never going to work. So sometimes you have to kind of take a few steps back and find an alternative path to get to the sound that 
you want to get and sort of the patience involved. And to me, that's really important because it's not about transcending anything. It's about just like taking the time to sit in your body and sit with the instrument and find where the two of them sort of have an intersection and a relationship that gets the results that I guess is amenable to both parties. Uh, is the way I might put that. Well, I think one way in which you definitely succeed um, in implying that that line of thinking is in the breathing. Um, I am not a brass player, uh, and, but I understand that uh, you know, just as a as a mouth breather myself, uh, I know it's a I know it's important to uh, express an expression and producing yeah, um, introducing what you're trying to say. Uh, and I was curious just to know about how you were thinking about your own breathing. Um, if there are any kind of special techniques that you were using, if you were conscious about leaving the breathing in. Yeah, I, I kind of, I've just sort of made that choice on, on every, on basically on every record I've ever done of like, I'm not going to edit out the sound of breathing. Um, because it's just, the sound doesn't exist without the breath. And, um, and so I, I, I don't like the idea of, I know there are a lot of, people who do that where they really edit out all the breathing and or when they're circular breathing they like make great pains to like not have the sound of it in there and I just and I feel like that that is um there are moments in performance where sleight of hand is is very effective but I don't feel like this is one of those moments to me a lot of my work is really imbued in the physicality of the sound and the physical process of it so I don't want to deny or remove part of the process that makes it happen. somewhere that kind of along this this path of uh, constructing and making and perhaps even geometry that you have an interest in making miniatures and dioramas. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. It's funny just looking up as you answer that because I have a couple on my shelves above me. I mean, I got into it a bit as a kid. When I was really little, my dad used to build um, model airplanes like uh, from the Second World War. And then he stopped and has never done it again. I don't know quite why. But they were around when I was a kid a lot. And so I, I kind of always really liked these objects. And then when I was maybe nine or 10, I started building models, just like model kits, just sort of just for fun. And then that led to some wayward teenage years of uh, building Warhammer models. What is a Warhammer? It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a real, it's some real, some real nerd stuff. Warhammer 40k is a tabletop game. I never actually really played the game much. I just loved building the, the models. Um, if it makes you feel any better, you are speaking with a former RuneScaper. Um, yeah. So I didn't mean to turn this into a confession booth, but... Oh, no, no, no. It's 
I don't I don't feel much shame about the Warhammer thing. It's just really funny sometimes when I think about it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'd always been sort of, I always really liked building things. And then a lot of my family like works construction. So just the, the making of things has always been kind of a part of my life. And then after grad school, via my partner, I, I, I um, fell into a job at a, at a small museum that their, their parents had founded and doing like exhibit maintenance work. And so I got to, as part of that, in addition to fixing exhibits, I got to build dioramas and like built one, like a, a working model with running water of the Iguazu Falls in Brazil and or on the on the border of Ian Hamilton Finlay's Little Sparta outside of Glasgow. So I just sort of, you know, I kind of was one of those like in the right place at the right time and had some of the skills and so got to fall into a job where that that miniature building was just a real part of it. And then since that sort of came back into my life in that way, then it just sort of became like, oh, I have a free time today. I'm just going to start building these other models for just for fun. And so that's, you know, unfortunately it's been less so since I had a kid, just, you know, just in terms of like suddenly I, that time is very different and I travel a lot for work. So it's harder to build miniatures these days, but it's a part of my life that I really, really love and would like to let it be more a part of it again as well. Do you think that there's any relationship between something that you were talking about earlier about your interest in these kind of different spaces and your interest in building miniatures? Yeah, definitely. I think it, you know, um, you are like getting to like create this perfect little world that exists and then you can either send it off, like you can give it to someone and then it in a funny way, it disappears from your life forever or it just exists as a photo. And this, this world just goes, gets given and disappears. Or, you know, they exist around your house and they slowly collect dust. And it's like, in, in, in this really nice way where it like, it's like, oh yeah, the world stays, but it slowly gets older. <laughs> I, I feel like there is a, there's a really strong connection there. And that's, that's the thing I'd love to have the space and the time for eventually is to build dioramic worlds with with sonic elements where they can kind of both exist together but that i think will be for the future (laughs) but yeah i think they're, they're very connected in my brain i suppose the question is not even what they would look like but rather what would that sound like or feel like do you have any initial thoughts on uh what a sonic diorama would be well uh, actually, yes, yeah, because I've gotten, I've worked a bit with this uh, holographer named uh, uh, Tristan Duke, and we've done some work together with these directional speakers that are really magical, where like you'll not be under it and hear nothing, and then you walk into it, and suddenly it's like there's a sound that has a pretty okay stereo field on it, like that just exists in the space, but you can't see the speaker because they, they basically you angle them so you like angle it into the ceiling and it bounces down into a spot so there's like there's no visible speaker sound just exists in this moment and in this space so i think to me it would um it would exist pretty heavily around that kind of you know sound where it's not just necessarily coming directly from speakers but from like acoustic speakers or using transducers and things like that, where the sound has a real textural element to it that that comes from the object itself or appears at the object itself rather than like an object with a sonic component. 
Well, whenever that happens, uh, I think that Threads is going to be a pretty <laughs> a pretty solid predecessor uh, because um, in a way, a lot of, uh, I guess, some of my feelings about listening uh, to this were kind of like, just like what you were describing. I feel like it was already dynamic in a way where I felt like I had been transported into a world with very different dimensions than the one <laughs> in which I live. And uh, yeah, so much of that was already was already pretty present, uh, which I thought was so impressive and, and beautiful. Uh, yeah, this isn't a particularly finished thought, but I, uh, um, of course, uh, this was recorded. Uh, I have the date exactly here, October 16th, uh, 2020. And um, I don't know this, if this is everyone, but I know that when I, uh, whenever I look at an album and I see that it was recorded during that particularly uh, harrowing time, I kind of, there's a part of me that shelves it as a, not shelves it, but like, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't, not as I would put it away forever, but that I just kind of categorize it as a quote unquote COVID album. And we see a lot of these COVID narratives, or I'm, I mailed a lot of them uh, as press releases, uh, that this was recorded during COVID and it's about being by yourself or it was recorded during COVID. And it's that like the time that I didn't leave my house for four weeks and I had to come up with a project. Otherwise I'd throw myself out the window. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I suppose, um, uh, I don't know. And there's like a, definitely another way to to look at that, right? Where it's not just kind of this like, uh, you know, oh, I had nothing else to do, but, you know, being in a time of like extreme formation and change and uh, transformation as an artist potentially. And yeah, I don't know. I guess, would you say that this ended up being that for you as a musician uh, recording during that? Yeah, I think I might say that it's sort of like, it's more of a, byproduct of covid than a co to me than a covid album in the sense that like you know all of the all of the threads that were sort of coming together and all of the circumstances that came together to allow the album to happen some of them were really accelerated because of covid um but they weren't necessarily the result of it you know the, a lot of that time for me was like um uh, for various reasons, I was really, um, I was, I mean, I was teaching on Zoom still, but I was really functioning as like a primary parent. I was, I was really, most of my days was just, were spent parenting and, you know, we were on a, a farm for a lot of it, which is lovely. It was just outside all day. Um, and so it wasn't, in a lot of ways, it wasn't really a period of, of, of isolation that it was for a lot of people. It was sort of the like, oh, I'm not constantly running to the airport and to teaching and to all of these things, but it was like a chance to sort of reevaluate a lot of the way that I function and kind of getting my life t more towards the way I would like it to function. But and a lot of the issues that brought up like what weren't created by COVID, I think especially as like I'm a pretty, <laughs> I'm a pretty homebody introverted person. So I'm very, um, I don't want to say COVID was a relief because it was, there's a lot of problems, obviously, but there was, um, the, the ability to stop was, was really, really wonderful. But a lot of what it really brought up was, is more about having the ability to stop than being about being in isolation. Um, if that makes sense, because I can see, you know, the things, especially that really led to that album were really, um, were really going pretty strongly already and we're already 
pretty big parts of my life, whether or not they were publicly parts of my life. And I had already had this real fascination with water tanks and was like always trying to get to these giant resonance spaces. Bokova kind of allowed being there long enough to like actually check on the map of where it was. Because <laughs> I always thought it was on the front range and, and not the western slope. And I was incorrect, <laughs> which I'm very happy about. Well, I imagine that that uh, that kind of misunderstanding or that disorientation is maybe also kind of part of what made, uh, I don't know, like they maybe it gave it that release maybe or that it was the start of it being released. Um, just kind of having those lack of understandings uh, crystallize and then having to fight out of them maybe. I don't know. But you actually uh, you actually figured out um, how to get there. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to know more about Maddie Barbier, and that's B-A-R-B-I-E-R, you can visit their website at maddiebarbier.com and their Bandcamp at the same name. If you'd like to know more about Sofa Music, including recent news and links for purchasing albums, you can visit sofamusic.no as well as their Bandcamp and other streaming platforms, Twitter, Instagram, etc. I'd like to thank Sofa Music for the use of their sweet space in Oslo and Maddie Barbier once again for their time. Next time, I'm talking to Jan Martin Smirdal and Oystein Weiler Udden about their literally electrifying release, Craft Balance, so do hold tight for that. Until then! <laughs>